Dress, the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. With over 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast that explores the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, Cassidy Zachary and April Callahan. Okay, dress listeners, I think that any of you out there who are Jane Austen or Louisa May Alcott fans are about to get a little bit of a thrill because today we are taking a trip back in time to explore the elaborate and prodigious intricacies of 19th century etiquette. And, you know, manners may not be exactly the first thing that comes to mind when you think of perilous situations, but let me assure you that some of these codes which governed the social graces during this time period, and we are talking specifically here about Europe and America here today, well, these codes of etiquette can be mind-blowingly complicated. And one false step, well, it wasn't just embarrassing, it could potentially mean utter social ruin. Not to mention these codes of etiquette were specific to gender, age, and even marital status. So you had to keep all of these designations in mind with each and every social interaction you had throughout the day. Many of the rules governing behavior during the 19th century can feel a bit overwrought and even a tad ridiculous to us today. But at the time, they were considered the very fabric and structure of society. To even begin to comprehend them ourselves, we, of course, well, we headed straight to the bookshelf for etiquette books of the era. Yes, and we are super fortunate to have a whole slew of these types of books and special collections at FIT. And I looked specifically at the following books. I looked at Etiquette for Ladies, which was published by Liam Blanchard in 1839. I looked at The American Gentleman's Guide to Politeness by Henry Lunettes from 1859. Social Etiquette of New York by Abby Buchanan Longstreet from 1884. Manners and Social Usages by Mrs. John Sherwood from 1887. And Manners, Culture, and Dress of the Best American Society by Richard A. Wells from 1893. Okay. That was a lot. That was a mouthful. <laughs> and and that, cast is just the very tip of the iceberg in terms of our holdings. We have so, so, so many more, including also ones that are kind of like a blend of being an etiquette and also like a beauty guide as well. So Right. And the great number of these relate directly to the fact that these little books were immensely popular at the time. The beginning of the 19th century saw an explosion of not only etiquette books onto the market, but also ladies' magazines, which frequently codified and coached their readers into their finer points of quote-unquote proper behavior. And in the wake of the French Revolution, the spread of democratic and republican forms of government really spurred the growth of the middle classes. And with all that brand new upward mobility came increased tensions and anxiety over one's social standing. Quote, Etiquette is the machinery of society. It is like a wall built up around us to protect us from disagreeable, underbred people who refuse to take the trouble to be civil, wrote one source from 1884. So, 
Basically, anyone who is interested in bettering their station in life, a deft knowledge of etiquette was key to gain acceptance into the world of society proper. You know, and and a lapse in this performance of manners, and I say performance because it really, really was, um, it could be quickly chalked up to one's lack of so-called good breeding. And this is a phrase that you see over and over and over again in these manuals, good breeding. Um, And and if one was deemed uncouth or quote-unquote ill bread, that could also make you an undesirable acquaintance at the time because basically anyone who was in your social circle was very much considered a reflection upon yourself. Yes. And this rapid expansion of the middle classes in Europe and America during the 19th century is a big part of the reason why etiquette books were so popular at the time, as we just mentioned. So if you weren't necessarily raised in the know, you could just buy a book that delineated rules on the proper way to move throughout the world. And these books covered all sorts of events and occasions from things we consider pretty standard today. So like table manners, wedding etiquette, or how to console a bereaved friend, but also more than a few topics that we would consider, well, a little niche today. Yes. And just a couple of my favorites include how to format a personal letter to the president of the United States. Naturally. Clearly we've all done, right? Um, The proper deportment to have when taking one's Harvard exams, which I found this especially funny because this is the only university mentioned in this etiquette book. And I believe at this time they, it was only men that could enroll in Harvard. So I guess the etiquette manual is saying, go go Harvard or go home. I don't know. Um, one source I looked at had a hilariously titled section called Life's Shipwrecks. I haven't dove into this quite yet, but I remained most intrigued and I will return to that chapter. But last but not least is how to deal with, quote, Low-bred women, cads, slanderers, and scandal mongers. I mean, (laughs) come on. You got to love that punchy 19th century language. Of course, there is no way we can possibly cover all of these topics in a single episode of Dress. So we have narrowed today's focus down to what was one of the most integral aspects of 19th century etiquette, and that is the practice of calling. And by this, we do not mean placing a telephone call. Because we have to remember that the very first telephone systems were really only commercially viable starting in 1877. And the adoption for home use was rather slow, I have to say. Um, According to the U.S. Department of the Interior, in 1900, only 3% of U.S. homes had their own telephone. So that begs the question, just how did people communicate with each other during the 19th century? I mean, letter writing, of course, that's a given, but there were also this other form of calling, um, these in-person visitations, which were governed by some of the strictest rules of etiquette. But before we even get to the matter of visits and calls, we first must address the matter of meetings and introductions. During the 19th century, it was rarely considered appropriate for two individuals, regardless of their sex, to meet without a formal introduction by way of a friend or a relative. And even then, both parties were supposed to separately agree to the introduction in advance. Quote, (laughs) unsolicited introductions are bad for both parties. And this was stressed by one etiquette manual we consulted. Yeah, and 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 you you might be asked why. Well, a formal introduction had the implications that the association between the two parties 
was going to continue. And this was especially true when it came to introductions to women. Quote, great prudence or action must always be used, but infinitely more care is necessary as a lady cannot shake off an improper acquaintance with the same facility as a gentleman can do. And their character is much easier affected by the apparent contact with worthless and the dissipated. Ouch. (laughs) That's rough. (laughs) The weaker, fairer sex, always the more impressionable. (laughs) That's right. Uh, So once both parties had agreed to a formal introduction, it was protocol to first present, not introduce, a gentleman to the lady. She, in turn, was expected to respond with a slight bow, a faint smile, and saying his name. So the person making the introduction would be like, Mr. Smith desires to be presented to Miss White. Miss White wishes to be acquainted with Mr. Smith. Then Miss White would bow, smile, and say, Mr. Smith. And April, this bow was absolutely necessary, according to some etiquette books, which say that unless she bowed, the gentleman cannot claim her as an acquaintance. Yeah. When we say some of these finer points are finicky, we're not lying. <laughs> um, and and right now, in my mind, so many historical period films are, are coming into my, my mind, right? And all of that formality is making so much more sense now because men were to be presented to women and women had to formally accept that social connection. So that's between men and women. But Cass, what about introductions between women? Surely these were a little bit less complicated? (laughs) One might think, but I mean, not really. After agreeing to be introduced in the case of two women, the younger was to be introduced but not quote-unquote presented to the older of the two ladies. If the two women happened to be of similar ages, their marital status now came into play, and the single lady would be introduced to the married woman. And if two women of the same age and marital status were being introduced, the one of lesser social standing... (laughs) Uh, would be introduced first. Okay, this just sounds, I mean, it's exhausting. Yeah, and also like like the breeding ground for so much unnecessary drama, right? What if you thought your social standing was higher than someone else's and then you found out it wasn't? It feels quite subjective, yeah. <laughs> Uh, we also do have to remember that, like, all this complications and, like, intrigue, uh, that it was a rarity at this time that women of the upper and middle classes would have a job outside the home. So their role at this time was largely wife, mother, and also to be the social representative for her entire family. So knowing the ins and outs of this, quote-unquote, you know, these really strict rules, this was ex- an accepted part of her duty and her station and responsibility to her her family, really. And I just want to mention one notable exception to the rule that introductions were always to be agreed upon by both parties in advance. It was always considered appropriate for a woman to introduce her children and husband without asking their permission first. Likewise, it was okay for a husband to introduce his wife without asking her permission first. <laughs> yeah, of course. So, Now we're at this point, and this is where things start to get a little fuzzy, because social gatherings like teas, dinners, and balls, um, they created a scenario where it might be possible that not all of the attendees have been formally introduced prior to the event. (gasps) I know, right? Shocking. (laughs) So this is when what was known as, quote, an introduction by roof went into effect. And the gist of this cast was that all of the guests 
can socialize or may socialize at will as a courtesy to their hosts. But once the entertainments had ceased, and as soon as they stepped out of the door into their carriage or onto the street, neither guest who had interacted with with each other over the evening had any obligation to formally recognize each other ever, ever again. (laughs) (laughs) Which is hilarious and strange to us today. Um, And also... If they did want to continue this association or develop a friendship, this process of requesting a formal proper introduction, that would then start from that point forward. So what you're saying is that there's no meeting someone at a party and hitting it off and then texting each other your phone number to stay in touch. No. (laughs) It was way more complicated. (laughs) Yeah, you'd have to reach out to your host, actually, at this time and request to be formally introduced. And get this, if the other person did not feel the same way about you, they could refuse your introduction. It was considered entirely acceptable to do so if they did not want to pursue an acquaintance or friendship. And if this happened, the refused party would then be expected to pretend as if the initial meeting never took place. Yes. So basically what you're saying is that ghosting is nothing new. (laughs) <laughs> you know, the Edwardians and the Victorians knew knew how to play this this game too. Um, so <laughs> it's pretty funny. Introductions weren't necessarily all that complicated, right? The long and the short of it boils down to it's always best practice to ask a friend or a relative to inquire with the other person if they would like to formally make your acquaintance. And once that acquaintance was established, it would then be expected that this dance of calling on each other would now go into full swing. And calling being this process of paying personal visits back and forth. And we're going to learn more about that right after this sponsor break. Welcome back. Before the break, we were talking about what happened after two women made each other's formal acquaintance, and it was generally expected that the older woman or the woman with the higher social standing would visit or call upon the younger woman first, and she would do so by stopping by her home between the hours of 2 and 6 p.m., although it must be said that different locales sometimes had slightly different hours that were deemed appropriate for making and receiving visits. Yes, some of the sources that I read said absolutely no earlier than noon, but it seems most agree that 6 p.m. was the absolute latest. So, Cass, you know, noon seems a little bit problematic to me because what if someone was having lunch around that time or even a little later? Um, and, And this is actually where our servants come in, and servants play a really critical role in calling culture. You know, even many middle-class households at this time had servants during the 19th century. So it was really expected that a servant would be the individual to answer the door. And a visitor would then present her calling card to the servant and inquire if the individual that they were there to see were at home. The servant would then deliver the card to said individual and or the lady of the house And if the person was at home and available, the visitor would then be ushered into either the drawing room or the parlor to um, strike up a conversation. It should be noted that it was considered very bad taste to socialize in this manner in the dining room because the dining room was to be avoided at all costs unless it was a very specific type of social occasion which centered around dining, such as luncheons or dinners. So you're no hanging out in the dining room, basically. (laughs) And the very first visits between new female acquaintances were considered much more formal than those between longtime friends. And therefore, these kind of initial 
visits were conducted with a little more ceremony. And generally, actually, they were not expected to be any longer than 15 minutes. They were uh, really a prescribed nicety that in, uh, indicated one's willingness to cultivate the acquaintance, perhaps eventually leading it to be a friendship. And for these formal visits, one tended to dress up for the occasion. Yeah, absolutely. And one thing that I found uh, really fascinating is the fact that due to the copious amounts of accessories cast, as we know, which women wore during the 19th century, it wasn't expected even on the most formal of visits, that a visitor remove her bonnet, her gloves, or even her shawl when she entered the house. And we see this depicted in fashion plates uh, frequently because there might be um, a, an image where a friend is dressed for daytime, like to the absolute nines, and the other woman in the image is slightly more casual because she's in her own home. So once this very first social call was complete, it would now be expected that the woman who had received the visitor in her home, it was expected that she would repay the call within one week. And there was, get this, absolutely no wiggle room for this. It was considered unfathomably rude if you didn't repay this first visit within the week. And the two didn't necessarily have to continue continue as more than formal acquaintances after this point, the initial visit and the repay of the visit. But the initial call and the repay were, were really kind of like compulsory. You had to do this. And I just want to interject and just kind of put into context that this is the 19th century. So pre-cars that we're talking about. So, you know, this calling is often done with the requirement of a horse and a buggy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, you're taking your carriage. Um, and, and all your this, driver. Yeah. And the the whole time I've been, you know, reading about this episode and this topic, it keeps making me think time and again of that fabulous TV show, which we mentioned before, Gentleman Jack, and kind of Ann Lister and Ann Walker make these copious amount of house calls to one another during their courtship and love affairs. So check that out if you haven't it's already. so good. And, <laughs> and if anybody doesn't know, it's written by Phoebe Waller-Bridge, um, who is, of course, like mind-bogglingly amazing. So if you didn't know that Gentleman Jack was written by the same person that wrote Fleabag, and you're a Fleabag fan, check it out. <laughs> And some of you listening may be wondering, okay, so what if you want to pay a call and the person you want to see isn't home or is not available? They're indisposed. And there's actually some debate on this matter. Should the party not be at home, the servant was expected to say the lady is not at home and the visitor would leave a calling card as evidence of her visit. Yeah, and we're going to go into greater detail about calling cards themselves here in a minute. But let's just get through these very like basics of calling. Cass, what if the woman is at home, but she's busy or not available? Well, some manuals say that the servant should still relay that the lady was not at home and that this little white lie was forgivable. If perchance the visitor were to see the person was actually at home when the servant had indicated otherwise, they were actually supposed to pretend they had not seen them. <laughs> <laughs> leave a card and retire from their doorstep. But uh, other manuals indicate that the servant should say the lady was engaged and also convey the day which she kept her at-home hours. At-home hours were, as we kind of mentioned earlier, a designated afternoon when a woman could be counted upon to be at home for the express purposes of receiving visitors, family, and friends. The servant might say, the lady of the house is at home on Tuesdays. 
And as we continue on and learn how complicated calling practices could get, it will become apparent just why this might be necessary. Oh, and and just one other thing that I want to note here, that upon no circumstance was a servant to admit a visitor inside if the person they were there to see could not receive them personally. So what this means is that a servant really needed to know their employer's wishes and what was going on in the house at all times. And because if they invited someone to wait in the entry hall to deliver their card only to refuse the visit, this was in extremely poor taste. And um, um, upon marrying uh, young brides or, or, or young newly married women, were actually in, advised to inform their servants immediately after breakfast her schedule for the entire day so that they could avoid any sort of mishaps with potential callers. This is giving me so much anxiety. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> okay. So that covers initial visits between two new female acquaintances. But what if more friends or acquaintances came calling at the same time? Again, the age, marital, and social standing came into play. When sitting in conversation, older women were always given the best seat, which in wintertime meant next to the fireplace, not in front, but adjacent to. Other ladies then would be sat according to the social hierarchy with young unmarried women having the least status. And should a new visitor arrive into a drawing room or conversation was already taking place, the whole order of things would be thrown into flux if she outranked someone occupying an honored seat. The whole group would get up and rearrange themselves out of respect. <laughs> so this totally reminds me of etiquette at the French court cast. You know, I'm sure many of our listeners have seen uh, Sofia Coppola's version of Marie Antoinette. And there is that scene when uh, she is standing there shivering naked. Um, the queen is because a higher ranking lady just entered the room as she was being dressed. And it would now be that higher ranking lady who had the honor of handing the queen her undergarments. Right. <laughs> you know? So it might not be as extreme as this and what we're talking about, but a whole hierarchy the same. And there was actually a whole history um, kind of behind these hierarchical structures of, of etiquette. So that's just between ladies. My question is this. is like, what if a gentleman were to come a-calling? Well, that had its own unique set of rules. And as one etiquette manual writer noted to his teenage nephews, to which he dedicated the manual, quote, perhaps few things are regarded as more formidable by the unpracticed than ceremonious morning visits to ladies. And just a side note here, he, he later goes on to define a morning visit as no earlier than noon. So I think he, he kind of really means afternoon. Yes, so the first rule for men is that under no circumstance were they ever to pay a social call to any woman unless invited. Quote, a lady should say to a gentleman, if she wishes him to call, I hope that we shall see you, or I'm at home on Monday. He then had an open invitation to visit her and her family anytime during regular visiting hours. And if a gentleman happened to be new to town and wished to make acquaintances, a letter of introduction would be necessary. So this would be written by a friend or relative who knew both parties on either side of the desired introduction and sent to the desired acquaintance along with his calling card. Should the recipient of the letter of introduction be desirous of the meeting, they would then reply accordingly. This also works similarly with ladies new to town in terms of letters of introduction. When calling, gentlemen were advised to, quote, take your hat, stick, 
and they mean cane by that, and right-hand glove in your left hand, end quote, prior to entering the drawing room. And this would really cast be an anticipation should the lady of the house rise and offer her hand to shake. So while bowing was the norm for first introductions, it was also equally common that a hostess may greet guests in her own home with either a bow or a slightly less formal handshake. So what to do with one's accessories um, during, during calls seems to have been a matter of some debate and consternation for men during the 19th century because it is covered in detail in all of these etiquette manuals. And for for very formal ceremonious visits, um, a man was not to remove his right-hand glove at all. Um, he was supposed to leave it on, even in the case of a handshake. Um, and, and, and to leave your glove on indicated the highest level of decorum, the highest level of respect. And what to do with said hat, stick, and gloves once greeted. Quote, gentlemen will do well to bear in mind that when they pay morning calls, they must carry their hats with them into the drawing room, but on no account put them on the chairs or table. There is a graceful manner of holding a hat, which every well-bred man understands. Or if he wants to use both hands, he must place it on the floor close to his chair. And prior to sitting... A gentleman was also compelled to speak to each of the ladies in the room, quote, in succession, according to age or other proper precedents, before you seat yourself. If there are ladies in the room whom you do not know, bow slightly to them. Also, if you are introduced after you have assumed a seat, rise and bow to them, end quote. I mean, I can't even keep this straight, and I, I wrote this episode. Like, I'm so confused. <laughs> Um, so likewise, if a lady were to take leave of the room, if a lady were to, to get up and depart, and if the gentleman was going to remain and continue the visit, he would also rise and remain standing until she exited the room. I mean, I guess, I guess maybe this would just come naturally after a certain amount of time, but this is really complicated. Right. And it kind of just attests to this like level of power and control that society sought to exert over people. I mean, it's pretty interesting how this is just one small glimpse into all of the rules and regulations that were expected of both men, women, and women and society at this time, which we of course have covered in a lot of detail in other episodes. But this is a pretty interesting insight into kind of these intimate relationships or not so intimate relationships, formal right. relationships. Yeah. So um, one more thing, charmingly, should Cupid be the causation of a bachelor's visit, he was advised never to ask for the young lady of interest, but rather to ask for her mother or chaperone, who more than likely would intuit the reason for his visit and entreat upon the young lady's company as well. And when leaving the visit, it was considered proper that a suitor leave his calling card on the hall table for both the master and mistress of the house to formally mark his visit. These little cards were surprisingly versatile and used to communicate a myriad of sentiments. And we are going to hear more about calling cards and their usages right after this brief sponsor break. Mm -hmm. 
Welcome back. So about those calling cards, they were not exactly new during the 19th century. Notes, one manual from 1887. We say that cards have changed less in the history of etiquette and fashion than anything else. They, the shifting pasteboards, are in style about, uh, you know, what they were 50 years, nay, 100 years ago. The plain unglazed card with fine engraved script cannot be approved upon. The passing fashion for engraved autographs, for Old English, for German text, all of these have had but a brief hour. Nothing is in worse taste than for an American to put a coat of arms on his card that only serves to make him ridiculous. (laughs) In fact, across the board, all etiquette books recommend this, you know, you know, the simpler the calling card, the better. Yeah. So at their most basic, a calling card simply had one's name, you know, printed, engraved upon it. And women were compelled to either use Miss or Mrs. in front of their name. It was kind of unthinkable not to do so because this, of course, indicated your marital status. However, men could omit the Mr. in front of their name because it was obviously implied. So it was optional, but also considered quite proper if one wanted to have their street address engraved in a slightly smaller script and placed at either the lower right or the lower left corner. And uh, in terms of like the size, uh, men's cards were generally a tad more narrow than women's cards, which, and, and all of this varied a little bit, but it's fair to say that women's cards generally average three inches by 2.5 inches, or, or if you're um, in metric, that's uh, 7.5 by 6.5 centimeters. So it was kind of like a squashed uh, square shape, um, but men's cards were far more rectangular. But in general, they're kind of the size of business cards, Right. Right. And men carried these cards in a pocket. However, women were advised to carry their cards in a card case held in their hand, which was then in turn held with an embroidered handkerchief. And boy, did some of these ladies do it up with their card cases, let me tell you. There are exceptional examples that can be found, and they're created from mother of pearl, exotic woods, sterling silver was especially popular. And these silver cases were often engraved with ladies or the lady's name or initials. Some of them also included little chains, so they were almost like tiny handbags, but they were very flat as they were intended to carry cards only. And you can actually yourself find a surprising number of these little gems for sale on eBay, these little calling card cases. Um, If you want to tumble down the rabbit hole like I did um, one evening, you know, because apparently, Cass, this is my idea of a jamming Friday night when you put on some pants, comfy pants, you have a glass of wine, and then you start trying to research extant examples of calling cards on eBay. (laughs) Who doesn't love a good (laughs) old-fashioned research rabbit hole? (laughs) I mean, honestly, when we began digging into a brief reference in an etiquette book from 1887, that's exactly what happened. It says, a gentleman does not turn down the corners of his card. Indeed, that fashion has become almost obsolete, except perhaps where a lady wishes it distinctly understood that she has called in person. So that's right, dress listeners. So far, we have only covered the most basic of basic uses of the calling card to know an in-person visit. But in practice, things got a lot more complicated. Sometimes they were simply left at the front door or delivered by way of a servant or later in the 19th century, even in the mail. And they were considered a token of one's regard and oftentimes stood in as a proxy for an in-person visit. Yeah, and and we could really go on and on about this for days, all these little ins and outs. So 
podcast, I propose that we do a speed round highlighting just but a few of the copious rules and customs of governing calling and the use of calling cards. What do you say? Just just so we can get them out there into the world. Right. Let's do it. Okay. Ready? Set? You go first. Okay. In the first call of the season, a lady leaves her own card and those of her husband, sons, and daughters. In calling on the sons and daughters of the house, every visitor should leave a card for the father and mother. If the ladies are at home, cards should be left for the gentlemen of the family. After balls, amateur concerts, theatrical parties, garden parties, or at-homes, cards should be left by all invited guests within a week of the invitation. This is the real kicker for me. Are you ready for this one? A servant must be taught to receive the cards at the door, remembering messages, and recollect for whom they are left, because it is not proper in calling upon Mrs. Brown at a private residence or a private house to write her name on the card. At a crowded hotel, this must be allowed, but not etiquette when visiting at private houses. So that means, Cass, that if someone was giving multiple cards to the residents of the house, the servant would have to remember who that person was that left the card for whom. See yep. what I'm saying? Like, you wouldn't write to this person. It, it, the servant was expected to remember all of this. Oh, yeah. Servants were expected <laughs> to do a lot of things. <laughs> so continuing on after dinner, one must inquire for the hostess and pay a personal visit. However, it is not considered necessary to leave cards after a tea. A lady leaves her cards as she enters the hall, pays her visit, and the etiquette of the visiting acquaintance is thus established for the year. When calling on a friend who is staying with people and with whom you are not acquainted, always leave a card for the lady of the house. And then there's also, no lady should leave a card upon an unmarried gentleman, except in the case of his having given entertainments at which ladies were present. Then the lady of the house should drive to his door with the cards of herself and family, allowing the footman to leave them. A young lady's card shall almost always be accompanied by that of her mother or her chaperone. It is well on her entrance into society that the name of the young lady be engraved on her mother's card. After she has been out a year, she may leave her own card only. Oh my gosh, we could do a whole episode on coming women's coming oh, young girls coming out. <laughs> we, we, we should do we, we should do it like a debutante coming out episode. We'll do oh, it. Yeah. We'll do it for sure. So let's see what else. If one of your friends has delivered a public oration, call upon him when he has returned home and tender to him your thanks for the great pleasure and satisfaction for which you are indebted to him and express your high estimation at the luminous, elegant, etc. discourse, trusting that he will be prevailed upon to suffer it published. Okay, I don't know about you, but first of all, why is it a him that gave a speech? Right, exactly. Right, um, and I'm, I'm I don't know about you, Cass, but my friends are miserably failing at that rule. I mean, you and I give public lectures all the time, and never once has anyone shown up on my doorstep lauding my quote unquote luminous discourse. That's because it's all done on Instagram now, <laughs> <laughs> or through text message, of course. All right. This is the final home stretch. So we've got visits, visits of condolence should be paid within the week after the event, which occasions them. But if the acquaintance be slight, immediately after the family appear at public worship. Which brings um, up the point, cast that <clears throat> if you are in mourning, um, you are expected to have special calling cards, which marked you're being in a period of bereavement. And the books say, quote, mourning cards are surmounted with a broad black margin, half 
morning ones, which is about six months in, um, with a black edge only. That's another entire episode in itself. Yeah. It is bad taste to keep the cards you have received around the frame of a looking glass. Such exposure shows that you wish to make a display of the names of visitors, which begs the question, just how were these calling cards to be kept? Generally speaking, they were kept on a little trays on the entry hall table, and oftentimes the tray featured a fluted lip, kind of like a pie crust, to keep the cards from slipping out as they piled up. Yeah, and so while it might be in bad taste to like put the cards up around a mirror, it was also not uncommon that there was a little manipulation of which card happened to be on top. You know what I'm saying? You know, you might just conveniently place the card of your most prestigious social contact on top so that all the other visitors might see it and they would know that you had this social connection. And and Cass, ultimately, like, uh, working on this, it, it struck me really hard that in many, many ways, calling cards at that time functioned not unsimilarly to the ways that likes function on social media today. Oh, yeah. It's just, it's been completely replaced, I guess, in this day and age by social media. And like I said earlier, text messaging, we just communicate in an entirely different way. And speaking of like stress listeners, if you enjoyed this episode and would like a follow-up show on other aspects of etiquette, we can do that. There's so much more to say. It's a whole vast world, really. So just, you know, reach out to us. Let us know. You can DM us on Instagram at dress underscore podcast. And this is also our Twitter handle. I suppose you could also send us your calling card if you really wanted to. (laughs) I think that does it for us this week, dress listeners. Please consider reminding your P's and Q's next time you get dressed. Join us Thursday for our weekly mini-sode where we answer listener questions and or keep you up to date on the latest happenings in the world of fashion history, whether it be a recommended reading, an exhibition, or a fun event that we attended recently. If you're a fan of the show, we want to grow our community and share with you how you can engage with fashion history now. Thank you as always to our producers, Casey Pegram and Holly Fry and everyone else at iHeartRadio that makes the show possible each and every week. Catch you Thursday. Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, check out the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.